Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman, and I hope this weekend, whatever your plans are, whatever you got going on, when you're tired and you're not feeling it and it, it feels like it's time to be done, I hope you're as good at calling it a night and saying, let's go home as Micah Parsons is. Man called game said, let's get the hell out of here. Follow Micah's lead. Don't stick around. No, no lengthy goodbyes. Just call it and go. We will get to Micah and a banger of a Thursday night game in Dallas very quickly. But man, we have a jam-packed week 13 show for you. Maybe you've heard. Got a big one on Fox this Sunday afternoon. The San Francisco 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles. We just had the Eagles Chiefs Super Bowl rematch. Somehow this one feels even bigger. Arguably the two best teams in the NFL. Little bit of a feud dating back to the playoffs. It's one we've been talking about forever. We're finally going to dive into it with Greg Olson. We've got Joe Davis on the show to talk about Lions Saints. Game for NFC playoff hopes, playoff positioning. And Fox Sports NFC North reporter Carmen Vitale is dropping by to talk about Packers Chiefs, which suddenly looks so much more fun. Wall-to-wall coverage of your Week 13 coming up. But first, let's get back to Micah Parsons and the Dallas Cowboys who slip past the Seahawks 41-35 in a track meet. Seattle. Not a coach, not an expert on offensive line play, but I'm just not sure losing track of a defensive player of the year candidate on a game-deciding fourth down is the right strategy. But that's what happened. Fourth and two, last gas drive. The Seahawks need seven. Micah Parsons off the right side. Looked like Seattle's offensive line slid left toward the pressure. Problem is, One of the best pass rushers in the game is out wide. Running back couldn't get to him. Geno Smith throws the ball away. And Micah Parsons, in my opinion, bails out a really strange decision by Cowboys head coach Mike McCarthy just moments before. That's that's where I want to focus first. There's so much to talk about in such a fun game. But let's take it back to the possession before. Cowboys are clinging to a 38-35 lead. They've come back from a halftime deficit. They force a turnover on downs, and that looked like the penultimate moment. They get the ball back with little time on the clock. It looks like they're going to grind this thing out. They kill off Seattle's timeouts by running the ball. They get all the way down to a third and three at the Seattle 14-yard line. Minute and 52 to play, so you're under the two-minute warning. Third down, no Seattle timeouts. And look, I'm, I'm... team aggression all the way. I want you to go for it on fourth down. I want you to go for the kill. I hate when coaches get conservative, but with Seattle holding no timeout, a run takes the clock down to roughly a minute left. You could potentially pick up the first running the ball. Tony Pollard had a decent enough night. If you pick it up, you win. If you come close, maybe you have a fun little conversation on the sideline about going for it pick it up, you win. It's worth the risk, in my opinion, all the way down on the 12, 13-yard line. And even if you get stuffed, you run the clock down to a minute and you kick, you take a six-point lead, you give Seattle 60 seconds to drive the whole field. Not McCarthy's call. He opts for a go ball to C.D. Lamb. 
favorable look. It's one-on-one coverage. And I can understand if you watch this game, you know all about these flag-happy refs. They threw 19 flags for 257 penalty yards. Maybe they were hoping for a referee call that essentially wins the game, but it felt like a low percentage play to me. And when it fell incomplete, stopped the clock. It gave Seattle all the time they needed to potentially drive the ball for the game-winning points. I think it's a puzzling decision, but it looks a hell of a lot better in retrospect when you know you have Micah Parsons. So maybe Mike McCarthy saw that coming the whole way. Who knows? Honestly, shout out to the entire Dallas defense for standing tall on what you would otherwise call a very forgettable, maybe even embarrassing night. This was just the fifth game in NFL history where we didn't see a punt by either team. First since, I believe, 2014, just up and down the field. The only thing stopping these teams were their own mistakes and occasionally penalty flags. Yes, refs, it was annoying. Seahawks racked up 406 yards and 35 points. DK Metcalf went off, looked like the guy we remember him to be. He tortured Deron Bland. Even Deron Bland gets another pick to to go to eight on the season, but DK Metcalf, six catches for 134 yards and three touchdowns. It was a rough night for the Dallas defense, but Seattle's last points of the night came one minute into the fourth quarter. They had the ball three more times in the fourth, and they were all stonewalled. Fourth down stops. Demarcus Lawrence gets a big fourth down tackle the first time, and then two big pressures by the Dallas pass rush force. (laughs) Two incompletions. They got off the field when they needed to. What else can you say? I can't imagine Dan Quinn's going to be very happy with most of that tape, but it was a hell of an impressive rally from a unit that started the night very, very slowly. Yes, I can hear you. I think we've talked for five, six minutes at this point, and I haven't mentioned the biggest night of them all. That would be Dak Prescott. Now, I would argue if you've been paying attention for the last month, Dak's been playing at this level for for quite a while. Essentially, since they got beat down by San Francisco, Dak Prescott has been on a heater. But to do it in a national window game, a standalone game against the 6-5 and team, that was the criticism we've talked about for weeks on end. Do it against somebody with a pulse. Well, Seattle had a winning record prior to tonight. They entered week 13 in playoff position. They're a wild card team. It's a much bigger step. It ain't the end-all, be-all. If you're not sold on the Cowboys, you don't have to be yet. But this matters more than beating Carolina at noon or the Washington Commanders on Thanksgiving. And against an opponent that was matching him step-for-step, Dak completed 71% of his passes, 299 passing yards, three touchdowns. He even threw in 24 rushing yards, looking like Mississippi State Dak, big boy in some DBs down in the red zone. Unlike a lot of Cowboys' other wins as of late, this one had to be a rally. Dak had to be nails in the second half. He spent most of the last month in a baseball hat in the second half. Through no fault of his own, he was trailing at halftime. He had a three-yard touchdown rush just before halftime, called back by a holding flag. And like I said, his defense offered very little in the way of resistance early on. So cut to the second half. Dak gets five possessions. He leads the Dallas offense to points on four of them. And the one possession where Dallas doesn't score after halftime, they elect to go for it on a fourth and two from the opposing 30. They had it. 
the throw was to the stick. C.D. Lamb had it. He just dropped it. That would have picked up a first down. So it's entirely possible they go five for five. Undeterred, Dak goes down to lead the Cowboys to points on their next three drives after that. Then they get the kneel down. I do think there was a play. You know, you, you put together career highlights for a, for a quarterback. Right off the top of my head, Dax Hill married a Cole Beasley against the Giants five or six years ago. He had the playoff scramble against Seattle in 2018, played the game of his life against Tampa Bay in the playoffs last year. He had a career highlight reel play in this game early in the fourth quarter. Looked like Seattle defensive end Daryl Taylor had him dead to rights. Straight up escaped from the sack. Just got out of a bear hug, scrambles outside the pocket, Finds Jalen Tolbert for 17 yards. Only led to a field goal. Not the craziest play, but a perfect example of the determination that this guy was playing with to get a win in a big spot. Just another amazing performance in this run. Since the bye week, 20 touchdowns to two interceptions. They've won five of those six. The one loss by by whiskers, by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin up in Philadelphia. And guess who's up next? Next week, Cowboys-Eagles 2.0 right there at AT AT&T Stadium where the Cowboys have now won 14 straight and could take on even more significance than it already has depending on what happens this week up in Philadelphia. Now, that's what you call a segue. Dallas-Seattle, ton of fun, great way to start the weekend, but the big one is Sunday afternoon. We've, We've talked about it. You know what's up. Philadelphia Eagles, the San Francisco 49ers, Sunday afternoon on Fox at the link. Who better to talk to than the guy that's going to be there? Greg Olson joins me now to talk about what we think is the biggest game of the regular season. All right, Greg, it's one we've had circled for a long time. It's Niners at Eagles, the rematch of the NFC Championship game. I think I've asked you this question from your perspective as a player I would also be curious for your perspective as a broadcaster, too. Like when, you know, this is a game that you've had circled all year long. Like when it's finally here, I mean, you know, you try to you try to approach it as any other game or like, I mean, there's no denying that there's some extra gravitas here, right? There is. And I think when the schedule came out, obviously, especially after the way everything went down last year in the NFC Championship, and we had the pleasure of calling that game, which obviously in the second half was was pretty unprecedented in the fact that San Francisco was unable to attempt to forward pass due to injury and, and really interesting circumstances. So I think when the schedule came out and we saw that this was going to be one of our big America's Game of the Week, um, you know, last weekend in November or first weekend in December, I guess, um, we knew this one had a chance to be pretty big. And then obviously that's all compounded to the fact that Philadelphia continues to win. It seems like every single week here and only having the one defeat. And then after a little bit of an, uh, a weird middle of their season there, it seems like San Francisco now is, is starting to roll and they kind of look like the team we saw earlier in the year, these last couple of weeks. So I think they're both playing as well as you could hope uh, for the backstretch of the season and the fact that we get to call it to me on paper, this is, this is the game of the regular season so far. So I'm one thing I I can't get over and it's been talked about a lot this week. Uh, I know, I mean, it it doesn't decide the outcome obviously, but it's very interesting to me that the 49ers are a road favorite in this matchup. You know, the Eagles have the best record in, in the league. They've won five straight. If you had to, 
think of a reason why the Niners would be favored in this game. I mean, is it is it the Eagles' tendency for the dramatic? Is it just the Niners, the strength of their roster? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, and and you know you don't see it a lot in the league where good teams are underdogs at home, right? So I, I definitely think it's 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 worth the conversation. I don't know a ton about how betting lines are made or what goes in. But just from a football, you know, observation, I I think a lot of times the markets and whatnot they look at how teams win, not necessarily just whether they win or lose. And I think when they look at the records, they kind of put that aside and they say, okay, over this last four week snapshot, how is San Francisco playing? How is Philadelphia playing? What are the metrics? What are they? What's their point differentials? How you know what is the manner in which they win? What is the margin of victory? And I think they look at all those things, and I think what people are concerned about with Philadelphia and and I'm not sure if I share these sentiments necessarily but what people I think are scared about with is it sustainable to have these big fourth quarter comebacks you know their last four games that they've won they've been trailing at halftime and it's a great story and they're magical and and Jalen Hurts is incredible and Sirianni and the whole story is is incredible but is it sustainable to always have the big fourth quarter comebacks week after week after week I think that's the concern is there's this narrative like one score games if you win them all yes it speaks to your culture it speaks to your situational football it speaks to just how good you are as a team but at some point there's always that fear of the regression right the regression back to the mean where you know you kind of the close games are almost more of a coin flip for the majority of the league and I think that's more of the concern and I don't think it's necessarily hey but they're but they're 10 and one it's it's the style in which they played the last couple weeks is my is my guess. And on the other end with San Francisco, they've been close to dominant. You know, they had that three week spell there before their bye where they were completely out of sorts. Trent Williams wasn't playing. They lost Debo Samuel. We were there for that. We called their kind of upset loss to Cleveland, um, you know, a month and a half ago, a month ago, whatever it was. So I, I think it's more that, but listen, at the end of the day, these are two of probably the best three teams in the entire league. However you want to slice and dice the manner in which they win, the style in which they win, there's something special about Philadelphia and their ability to find ways to win even when they don't necessarily play great. And obviously you can make the argument that San Francisco could potentially have the best roster in the NFL top to bottom. So when you put those two together, I think this game's a coin flip, you know, regardless of what the betting market suggests. It's exciting just to think about. Uh, I'm curious. I, it's hard not to think about the Lions in this game. You, I mean, we've talked about the, the playoff game last year. Brock Purdy made it six snaps into that game uh, before the Eagles pass rush took him out of it. Eagles pass rush also got to the backup, to the backup, Josh Johnson. I know Trent Williams is back, and I know what a difference that makes. But across the entire offensive line, I mean, do you think San Francisco's offensive line is up for the challenge this time around? It, it's a huge challenge. And, and I think right now at this stage, you know, down the stretch here in December, San Francisco's offensive line is a lot more well-equipped in the run game than they are necessarily in pass protection, with the exception of Trent Williams, right? They have, like, Trent Williams – and then the other four spots, they're good. They're, they're they're good in the run game. It's a great scheme. They're obviously one of the best and most efficient run offenses. One of the most efficient offenses, period. A lot of that has to do with the style in which they play. They decide to throw on early downs, not to stress their protections. Kyle Shanahan is the master at understanding how his scheme 
can make up for any of the deficiencies or the weaknesses that they may or may not have on offense. And that's the sign of a great coach is collaborating the scheme and the personnel to fit each other. So when you look at going against Philadelphia, what don't you want to be? You don't want to play from a trail. You don't want to be in a must-pass situation for any of the game, let alone the entire second half or the entire fourth quarter because you find yourself trailing by you know two scores or whatever it is. So I think the key to not let this pass rush this defensive line get after the passer is they have to be able to get establish a lead in the beginning, meaning San Francisco. They play with the lead. That way your run game's a lot more efficient. In these last couple of weeks, we've seen what's probably what's been on paper, the best run defense in, in just raw yards and attempts and whatnot being Philadelphia. A lot of that has to do with Philadelphia's always playing with a lead that other teams can't necessarily run the ball at them consistently to try to make any hay. The last couple games, Philadelphia's played from behind. Other teams have had a lot more success running the ball as a result because they were in a position to. So I think for San Francisco's formula to continue to play out the way it was, do everything in their power early in this game to get a lead, hold that lead, and be able to lean on that run game because you don't feel like you need to throw it as often to chase those points. I think that protects your protection. I think it doesn't stress your offensive line and it also plays entirely into your hand of what you're best at. So I think we could probably say something similar for Philly, right? Like they've been playing from behind recently. They I'm I don't think it's a coincidence Jalen Hurts has been sacked 12 times over the last month. Meanwhile, the Niners have 15 sacks since they traded for Chase Young. So clear I mean not a pass rush that you want to be in a lot of obvious passing situations against. I'm curious for the Philly run game by their very lofty standards, they haven't been running it all that well up until they get into a rain game against Buffalo last week and they average six yards of carry. They go for almost 200 yards on the ground from what you've seen. And especially against this San Francisco front, do you think that's sustainable for their run game? You know, I think what's cool and interesting about Philadelphia is, you know, they've been a good run team, right? When you just look at the raw numbers, of course, Jalen Hurts and this year with Swift and, and uh, you know, the best offensive line in football, it makes sense to why they would be in the top of the run game conversation. But they are they are a pass first team. They almost play the game backwards, right? They are going to throw the ball early and often in possessions, first and second down, downfield shots on first down. And they're going to be very pass-centric early. What makes them a run team, which is a little uncharacteristic in the rest of the league, is they're running the ball on third down more than anybody. And a lot of that has to do with they're in a lot of third and manageable situations. But really, the, the, the ace in their hole is they have fourth down. So third and six to them is second and six. Third and four to them is second and four in, in theory. Most teams, third and six, they have to throw the ball or they're punting. So where they make up for their run game is really an unconventional run downs, which is why that's to me, that's the magic and the beauty of this of this offense. And this is what I think Brian Johnson and Nick Sirianni and last year, Shane Steichen, like that's the beauty that they've captured is and it's a huge advantage. Teams are uncomfortable playing them. Because you have to really flip your approach of how you treat first and second down in most weeks and then how you treat it this week. So I think the run to them is all based off, again, a la San Francisco. They are going to throw the ball as early and often as they can, run it to keep drives alive, 
and run it to run the clock out at the end of the game if they have a lead. I think the last couple of weeks, because they were playing from behind, the run game's a little less valuable there until you know you get into a rain fest and you're just you know that obviously extenuating circumstances. But they want to get the lead so that they can rely on their pass rush and then lean on the run game. But without that lead, it kind of flips their approach a little bit, and we've seen. We've seen the results. They've gotten a little more pass-centric. They've gotten a little more drop-back, less play-action, less RPO, because they're trying to rip it up and go get points. And Hertz is holding on to the ball, pressure. It all ties hand-in-hand. Hand. So I think both these teams' formulas are very similar in that regard. They, the manner in which they go about it, though, is, is vastly different. These are polar opposite philosophical styles of offense. Going off of that point, do you, how much of a strain do you think it is for an opposing defense, like mentally and physically too, but mentally to, you know, it's third and six. And you're like, if we let these guys get to fourth and one or fourth and two, we're not getting off the field. Yeah. We, we when we called that Dallas Philly game, you know, the, the best way that I can put it to the viewer is say from the minus 35 yard line. So from Philly's 35 yard line, all the way to the opposing team's goal line. So 65 yards. They are in essence operating on first down like it's first and eight. They only know they only need to get eight yards in those first three downs because 97% of the time, if it's fourth and less than two, it's a it's a first down. The advantage that they now can have in the way they put their game plan together, the way they call plays on first down, the, the whole thing plays from that approach. So defensively, defensive coordinators now have to flip their mind. And third and six, all right, I'm running my nickel personnel. I'm doing third down pass rush. I'm running pass stunts because I know that quarterback's got to throw the ball six plus yards, in essence, to pick to keep the drive alive. No, I can't just call pass stunts because I got to make sure that they're solid in the run fits. I got to make sure I don't just sell out with nickel personnel because they could run the QB design run or they could run swift with this offense line right down my face. And then if it gets to fourth and less than two, we might as well just allow it to be first down and start all over again. It is it is a burden to stop. Um, and I love it. I think there's so much game within the game when you're calling a Philadelphia yeah. game. But if there is a team that is physical, big up front, well-coached, talent everywhere, I mean, this San Francisco defensive line is probably the most talented in the entire league. I mean, it, it, when they line up, their first four guys and then the four they bring in behind them, they got eight guys. And I feel like five or six of them are former first-round pick. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what um, what they do. So, I, I, again, we could talk about this game all day, the matchups, the back and forth. It's, it's as good a football as you can find in the NFL. Going off of that, you're you're right. I mean, the, the talent's everywhere. There's an interesting matchup everywhere. One thing that feels pretty unique, and I talked to Peter Schrager about this earlier this week, is there's like there's bad blood here too, you know. And like in an in an age, it feels like you know players swap jerseys and and they go to each other's camps in the off season. Like I mean, players are are friends. They're in this together for the most part, but. It seems pretty rare the degree to which these teams genuinely don't like each other. Yeah, and I think it adds an exciting element on top of everything else we've talked about to the matchup. And we we all know, you know, we've we've seen and read all week Tebo Samuel's comments about, you know, what would have happened if Purdy didn't end up going down and and all that. And then we saw the responses back that um, 
uh, who um, who taught who said that about James Brad? Who said James Bradbury was trash? Um, oh, uh, that was Debo. Debo. Yeah, it was Debo as well. So Debo seems to be at the center of of all <laughs> yeah. of this. So there's been a lot of back and forth. I think all of that makes for a fun week. All of that makes really fun for our jobs to to cover it. And I'm sure we'll have some of those quotes up early in the in the game to just kind of set the stage. But once the game starts, you know, the notion about bulletin board material and all that. I think a lot of that is overblown when, when the game starts, it's going to be decided on the field. It's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be extra motivated to win because some guy told you you sucked or something. It's going to come down to who plays the best. And uh, the rest of the week is a lot of fun for guys like us to talk about and build up to the matchup. And it's just one more fun layer on top of when you boil it all down is just is two of the top handful of teams in the entire league and um, playing a December game. That's what you want. It's, uh, I mean, we we didn't get the real version of this game in January. Credit to the Eagles for winning it. Not trying to take the credit away, but this is this is what we wanted to see. Hopefully, it lives up to the hype. Greg, hope you have a great call, man. I'll talk to you later. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Greg. 49ers Eagles obviously is it's the game of the season, like you said. Of course, it's the game of the week, but there's a really sneaky one happening up at Lambeau Field. Maybe doesn't have the luster that you would expect from Chiefs Packers. Ironically, we waited so many years for Rodgers Mahomes, we never really got it, and now we get Mahomes Jordan Love 2.0. But with the way the Packers have been playing the last few weeks, this is suddenly a way more interesting game than I would have given it credit for. So we wanted to do this one justice. Brought in some help to help me preview Kansas City at Green Bay. Lambeau Field. I'm joined now by the one and only Fox Sports' NFC North writer, Carmen Vitale. Carmen, A, how you doing? <laughs> Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Dave? I think it's it's a little early for our victory lap. but Our you, victory lap? Uh, I'm, I'm a Jordan Love believer. Okay. I, may I didn't or- realize that I had, I had swayed you back way back when, when we did this the first time. I may or may not have placed some friendly wagers on the Packers to make the playoffs, oh. maybe win the division. I, not quite to the degree as you. So maybe early for you to take a victory lap. The point I was trying to make is that Jordan loves balling out. He is starting to look like the franchise quarterback that the Green Bay Packers were hoping they would see this season. My basic question for you is what is the biggest reason for that? Do you think? So I asked Jordan Love about this because I was at the game in Detroit that they won over the Lions, the Packers won over the Lions on Thanksgiving. And he told me that his receivers have a better sense of the timing on each route, where they're supposed to be on each route. They've also learned Jordan Love himself and his rhythm, not to mention the offensive line is figuring out what the best combo is finally. And it's to the point now where Matt LaFleur trusts his offense enough to open the playbook up a little bit more. And this Green Bay offense looks like it's supposed to which means Jordan Love is now strongly in command of more of the final product that they wanted to see in Green Bay. And lo and behold, it's it's working. So clearly this would be a different level of a statement, in my opinion. I mean, Chargers are their own mess. The Lions have had issues on the defensive <laughs> side of the football. I think we could agree. Kansas City... Mm. Top 10 in DVOA this year, 
Uh, talk DVOA to me. Yeah, they're, I mean, they are incredibly efficient. They're third in scoring defense. They're fourth in sacks. Despite, I mean, Chris Jones is an amazing player, mm-hmm. but for the lack of premier pass rushers, George Karloftis stepping into his own in his second season. But my point is, they're not great at, at pass rush win rate. Like, they don't have that defensive player of the year edge guy. They're still fourth in sacks. This is a different beast, I think, from what Jordan Love has seen over the last few weeks. Where specifically do you think that the Chiefs present a challenge for him if he's going to keep the streak rolling? I fully expect Steve Spagnuolo, the defensive coordinator in Kansas City, to challenge the Packers O-line because what you of what you just said that they don't have like that premier pass rusher yet they're still getting sacks which means they're getting creative with it and not to mention the Chiefs rank 6th in blitz rate so i think Ooh. that pulls double duty because not only can you force love out of his rhythm while he's in the pocket but you can also potentially get Chris Jones some of those one-on-one matchups on the interior and that's a weakness right now for the Packers offensive line and that's a that's a matchup Jones is going to win Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, quite literally. So, I mean, this is this is what we have to find out on Sunday. But do you do you trust Jordan Love to hold up against that type of pressure, especially if the Chiefs bring that at him? Can he hold up? If the offensive line can, I think absolutely Jordan Love can hold up against this Chiefs defense. The Packers can combat this with that quick game, with play action, just something to mitigate that rush. And if Jordan Love can be decisive and get the ball out faster, get his reads, get through his reads quickly and take care of the football, which we've been able to see him do these last couple of weeks, to be fair, I think they absolutely have a shot of contending with this Kansas City Chiefs thing, Chiefs team. Honestly, I've got a weird feeling about this game. I think it's going to be, no. I think it's going to be weird. Let's talk about that. I'm looking at it right now. The Chiefs, you know, the metrics say the Chiefs have like a 72% chance of winning this game. They're favored by six points at Lambeau Field. And look, Which is a lot. I'm not trying to sell anybody that the Packers are all of a sudden like the team to no. beat in the NFC, but but they're right there in the playoff race. They're yeah. at home. Six points feels like a lot to me. Like I fully expect this to be, and keep in mind what we've seen from the Chiefs. Like this is not the muscle flexing Kansas City Chiefs that we've gotten used to, at least on the offensive side of the ball. Right. At the very least, I think this will be a low scoring close game outdoors in Wisconsin in in it will be December. Yeah, I, I'm I'm surprised based on what we've seen that the Chiefs are getting this much leeway. I am, too, because I think being at home at all you have that's a, that's another th- that's a three that's a three points right. along the spread like there's there's no reason that this should be at a six point spread in favor of the Kansas City Chiefs up at Lambeau Field in December we're just you're hoping for that real like wintry NFC North type game for these guys because that's going to work in the Packers favor they're used to this kind of stuff I, I think it being at minus six it needs to be max minus three at this point if it's in Lambeau I think it would go the other way if it was at Arrow Head, but minus three going to be in the mid thirties. I mean, not that the chiefs are no strangers to cold they weather. Are not, yeah, that's true. But There's been plenty of snow games at Arrowhead. I still, I, I, I'm with you and all right, let's, let's get into the rest of this. I mean, see if you follow me here. I bet green Bay is feeling thankful. Oh God. For the weekend <laughs> off after the big Thanksgiving win against Detroit. <sighs> okay. We record this early, so we don't know for sure, but as of right now, Jair Alexander, Darnell Savage, 
Eric Stokes, Rudy Ford, all at least practicing for mm-hmm. the Packers. I believe I just named like half of their secondary. Half of their entire defense, most of the secondary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we know a big story for this Chiefs season has been the inconsistency of the receivers. Rasheed Rice had a really nice week against Vegas, but other than Travis Kelsey, we're still looking for that guy Patrick Mahomes can count on. So if even if even some of these Green Bay DBs are back in the mix, how much does that help the Packers' odds of slowing them down? It helps tremendously. If the Packers have all of those guys you just mentioned, I think it's possible to slow down this Kansas City Chiefs offense Patrick Mahomes has not looked unstoppable this year, and it's because of that lack of chemistry with his receivers. The Kansas City Chiefs have the most dropped passes in the league at 30 so far this year. It's not it's not a good scene for Patrick Mahomes. There's only so much even he can do. So if you have all of those guys back and you stay on your man, you're not going to get all of this improvisation that we've seen from the Chiefs in the past because it's just the chemistry is just not there. And I really think that coverage sacks are possible when it comes to this Kansas City offense because you can't blitz Patrick Mahomes. Let's let, let's face it. He's one of the best against the blitz. Don't, don't do that. But you can absolutely, if you can stay on your man in the secondary, you absolutely can get to him and, and force this Kansas City Chiefs offense to really slow down. And the only thing I'm concerned about, though. There it is. What is, what is I know, that? I'm, I'm concerned. The Packers' pass defense has been an issue for them all season. They are average at best in that phase of the ball. And I think a lot of it has to do with those injuries that you just mentioned. They haven't had, have, have not had those guys available. Yeah. But teams aren't passing as much on the Packers either because their run defense is also has also been horrible for most of the year. They rank 27th in rushing defense at this point. They give up an average of what, 135.2 yards per game. So if you can slow down this Kansas City Chiefs run game, make force Patrick Mahomes to have to do Patrick Mahomes things and stay on your man. I expect a lot of man coverage come Sunday. Uh, you you could be in good shape if you have all these guys healthy. I, so, I guess, is that the strategy? Because I, I agree with you. And sorry, Chiefs. I think you could probably, especially if Jair Alexander is available, I think you could probably get away with manning up and clogging the box. Is that is that it? Because it's easy to say slow down the Chiefs' run defense, and I know the Chiefs aren't a juggernaut, but we've seen Isaiah Pacheco. Yep. We've seen the Chiefs grind these things out when they need to. Should I trust, even if they can clog the box, like should I trust that the Packers can do that? Because their run defense, going back to last year, yeah. it is an issue. That is the most disappointing part of the Green Bay Packers, I think, this year, is that their defense has not taken a step forward. Uh, Matt LaFleur elected to keep Joe Barry, their defensive coordinator, despite the fact that they had these issues last year. That has not changed. And it it's not a unit that Jordan Love has been able to rely on, despite the fact that the Green Bay Packers have eight first-round picks on that defensive side of the ball if they have all of their guys healthy. There's no excuse for it. You're going to have to stay really disciplined in your run fits. But again, those secondary guys are going to help with that. And if they're all healthy, they can come down in the box and they can try to prevent not only Isaiah Pacheco from getting to the outside, but also Patrick Mahomes from getting to the outside and and making plays with his legs and his mobility and seeing guys that are open 10 seconds after the fact that play has broken down. It's It's not going to be an easy task. I'm just saying it's possible. I mean, I I've already said, like, I don't know. I, 
I've got to, I, I feel, I feel intrigued by this matchup. Like I'm, I'm not gutsy enough to call for the outright upset. I'm not either. But I do think the Packers have made some strides. I'm so much more interested to see what happened, like I said, than I was even a couple weeks ago. And honestly, either way, like I, I think this would be a nice win for the Chiefs, even if the Packers are under 500, going on the road, big atmosphere. And if the Packers find a way to win, now it's a completely different conversation. Yep. They are right there in the thick of the playoff hunt. Regardless, Carmen Vitale, I know you will be there to cover every step of it. I will. We appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Carmen. Let's just keep it right in the NFC North, one of the other big, big matchups in Week 13. Same division, the Detroit Lions coming off of the loss to the Green Bay Packers, heading down to New Orleans to face a Saints team equally in need of a big win. I'd go as far as to say the loser of this game is going to be in full-blown crisis mode, particularly the Lions who have been in firm control of the division for so much of the season. Got to find a way to get a win this weekend. To preview it, I talked to the guy who will be there in the Superdome. That would be Joe Davis. We'll be calling the game alongside Moose Johnston. Caught up with Joe about the matchup. Check it out. All right, Joe, it seems like this happens from time to time during an NFL season. You and Moose called Saints-Falcons last week, and now you turn around and you get Saints-Lions down in New Orleans this week. I'm curious for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, you know, when you get it, you know, when you get back to back games from the same team like this, it almost maybe feels like you're like embedded with the team, spending a little more time than usual with those guys. So what's that like? You know, what's it like just getting uh, a couple weeks to look at the Saints and with that extra time to look at them? What are you hoping to see from them as they try to bounce back from that loss in Atlanta? Yeah, we love it from a prep standpoint. Definitely shaves the work down, so a little more time to do some other things during the week. But uh, it, I know it does let you go a little bit deeper, I think. Whereas when you see the team for the first time, you're trying to learn as much as you can, and you, of course, want to be an expert on them. But there are other layers you can pull back when you get them a second time, and especially when that's the next week. Uh, there's so much time that you spend when you get a team for the first time going back and looking at the previous week and studying those stories and studying that game tape. When we already kind of lived that, we can jump deeper. Um, this week, I mean, that said, it's almost like it's a whole new story given the injuries that they have a receiver now. Like, what in the world is this even going to look like for the Saints? And uh, there's that new angle, but there's also the same angle, which is this defense was really good early and hasn't been very good lately. So can they figure that out? I'm glad you mentioned the receivers. That's, I mean, look, they didn't have Michael Thomas already. Now we'll be watching to see what's going on with Chris Olave and Rahid, uh, Rashid Shahid as well. It, I mean, this offense has been pretty frustrating before all of that happened. Ironically, Chris Olave has, you know, his best half of the season before he goes out injured. But, you know, Alvin Kamara is is talking after the game that they're consistently inconsistent. What what do you see from this offense? And I mean, I know we don't know 100 percent what's what's going to happen with these wide receivers, but. Who do they turn to to try to get this thing going, especially if their receivers aren't fully healthy? Yeah, it's been weird because even when they're fully healthy, it has not been, Kamara said it, consistently inconsistent. It's, it's a great way to put it. It's not been, because you can look at the names and say this should be a legit high-powered offense. You know, like Derek Carr is a good quarterback. Like, I, I don't know what's going on there. I, 
he was a prolific quarterback in Vegas and, and all those years with the Raiders. So for them to not really hit their stride, I mean, I guess probably part of it, Dave, is that it's his first year. Man, even when they were fully healthy, there's so many weapons. I mean, Shahid's become one of the best big play guys in the league. And Kamara, I think, is still Elvin Kamara and Olave Thomas. And I mean, my goodness, Juwan Johnson is a good tight end and converted receiver who's talented. So I don't know. I know I'm kind of rambling. I, I guess that's a, that's a way of saying I just don't really know why they haven't been able to hit their stride yet. And it's it's a bummer to think about the injuries that are going to make it even harder to do so. I think you speak for a lot of people as a, you know, as a as a New Orleanian, I've got a lot of family down there who are weekly. They're like, uh, what's going on with these guys? I'm like, I wish I could tell you on paper. It sure as heck looks like it should be a lot better. Mm -hmm. So on the flip side, I believe this is y'all's first game with Detroit. Maybe this is a case where and look, I know Detroit eight and three still having a phenomenal season. But since their bye week, this is a defense that's allowing 31 points per game, almost 400 yards per game. Had a, you know, Jordan Love had a phenomenal performance against them on Thanksgiving. I mean, maybe this is a case where somebody's got to buck the recent trend. I mean, wh whether it's the Saints offense or the Lions defense, somebody's got to step up their play in this game. Yeah, I think there are two lenses to look at the Lions through. One is, my goodness, the best start they've had since the 1950s. This is a dream season. But then you zoom in with the expectations that are built from this start, and it's like, well, what in the world's going on lately? You know, these three games where they haven't played as well since the bye, they still won two of them, right? Like, how quickly things change? I grew up in Michigan, where so I so I have this perspective of like, my goodness, the Lions are eight and three, and then right. I up, you know I'm picking up the newspapers this week, and you know our version of newspapers, the digital copies that we get to to study these teams, and it's like the sky is falling. I'm like, wait a minute, no, the sky was falling for my. 20 years as a kid growing up in Michigan when they couldn't win a game. They're eight and three now. I know they're giving up some points lately, but it's just amazing to me how fast uh, expectations and narratives shift in this league. Which I'm glad you brought that up. I remember, you know, it, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but it wasn't that long ago. You and Moose did a Niners Jaguars game. And the sky was falling for the Niners. It's three losses in a row. And they go down to Jacksonville and they you just beat the brakes off the Jags. And, and here they are. They're right back at the top. So whether it's just in general or maybe that game specifically, I mean, what do you have any insight on or, or anybody from the Niners tell you when you're in that situation where people are acting like the sky is falling? Is there any keys for the Lions trying to bounce back and, and maybe regain some of that momentum? I think that it's probably a case by case basis, Dave. You know, you look at you look at what the 49ers, they were they had the bye. So a couple of ways to look at that. It's like, man, we got to stew on this for an extra week. But also Kyle Shanahan's always been really good coming out of buys. Um so I you know, there's the 49ers case and then specific to what we're talking about here with the Lions. I don't know. We talk about the defense giving up a lot of points. I don't think their defense is going to be a strength at any point. I think the offense is it's got to be – I think the offense got to be better than they've been the last game or two, right? They they you know, they get seven turnovers the last two games. Like this team built yep. to score points and win games that way. So, yeah, the defense should be better than it has been. But the offense needs to outscore teams for this version of the Lions 
to be the Lions. And and lately, they've not been the same offense. It's a good point. One last thing I want to touch on with you. And I mean, yes, Lions have to play better. There's no way around it. But it's hard not to to think about the the narrative aspect of this with Dan Campbell going down to New Orleans. Obviously, that's where he spent five years before he got the head coaching job uh, with the Lions. What what's 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 the narrative there? Where do you how do you see that going? He's he's he wears his heart on his sleeve. Obviously, I feel like this has to be a big week for him. Maybe that could elevate the Lions play to try to get him a big win in the Superdome. Yeah, I would I would think so. I, I don't think that we're going to get my I'm looking forward to talking to him to to hear officially how he's feeling about it. But I would think that if any coach were to not give us coach speak in a situation situation like this, it'd be Dan Campbell. Like he's going to, I would hope, tell us how he feels about going back there. And I would think, yeah, there's some emotions to it. But I also think that once he admits to those emotions that any human's going to have going back to a place where he spent as much time as he did, this game matters because the Lions are eight and three and need a win to kind of stop this bleeding again this this relative bleeding uh with the division getting a little bit tighter and, and them wanting to write this ship to be headed into the playoffs on the right foot so i think that's going to wind up being the bigger narrative than his return but hopefully he does acknowledge and embrace that side of it too perspective is everything man you're right i mean the, the lions do need a win uh, they would love to keep pace with all the other teams but uh, yeah, I'm sure if I could go back in time and tell you as a kid that the Lions are trying to stop the bleeding at eight and three, you would probably right. take that, right? I would. I would say, what? Well, that's not true. It doesn't happen. Yeah, should be a good one. Hope it's entertaining. Hope you all have a great call, Joe. Safe travels. Appreciate okay. it, man. You got it, man. Thank you. That just about does it for the week 13 preview. Still some business to get to. That is our favorite segment of the week. It's the hurry up offense. There's eight games left on the slate. We haven't gotten to only eight. There are a whopping six teams on a bye this week. Leaves for a somewhat lighter Sunday than usual. Not to worry. We will get you something good on every single matchup left on the week 13 slate. Good little tidbit, factoid, prediction, whatever for you before you head on into your weekend. Get you ready for week 13 and all of its glory. So my wonderful producers, as they always do, they're going to put three and a half minutes on the clock. I'm going to get you through all eight of these games with so many teams on a bye. I should be able to come in under the buzzer, but we'll see every time I predict that it feels like it goes the other way. So we'll see how it goes. Let's start it right here in LA, the Cleveland Browns and the LA Rams at SoFi stadium. Don't laugh about Joe Flacco potentially starting. He averaged 300 yards per game in three games as a New York Jet last year to start the season, five touchdowns, three picks. I think he's capable of doing enough. The bigger issue for me, I don't yet know the status of Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward. Keep an eye on that. Will they play? The Browns calling card is defense. Kyron Williams is going for the Rams now. They've obviously got the passing attack with Matthew Stafford. I need Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward on the field. I'm way more worried about that than Joe Flacco. I assume one or both of those guys is going to play. I will take the Browns on the road. I do like the Rams, though, but give me the Browns. Broncos at Texans, huge, huge game for tiebreaker purposes in the AFC. Winner goes two games above 500, and they get a head-to-head win. These teams are both in the wild card hunt. A head-to-head tiebreaker could be a big, big deal. Do not underestimate this one. C.J. Stroud averaging 300 yards per game over the last month. The Broncos are only averaging 173 passing yards allowed during their five-game win streak. What's going to give? 
one of the hottest players in the league versus one of the best defenses in the league right now. I'll take the Texans at home. I Give me the kid. I love C.J. Stroud. I feel fine about it. Colts at Titans. It's an AFC South game. It's two middling teams. I know the Colts are in the wild card hunt. Still not a juggernaut. Mike Vrabel, home underdog. Allow room for weirdness. That's what I always say about this division. I don't know how. I don't know why. Tread lightly. I will take Mike Vrabel as the home underdog with the Titans. Falcons at Jets. I worry about Desmond Ritter going against this Jets secondary. Jets have four picks in their last four games. Even in some lopsided losses to Josh Allen and Tua, they've frustrated those guys. They are capable of getting takeaways against the very best. I'm telling you right now, Desmond Ritter is in for a long day at work. But even if Aaron Rodgers is practicing, he's not playing yet. I still, I trust so much more about the Falcons than I trust the New York Jets to put together a cohesive offense. So even if Desmond Ritter's got a couple turnovers, a couple mistakes to his name, I'll take the Falcons on the road. Chargers at Patriots. If the Chargers can't get this done against the Patriots team that's circling the drain, Jabril Peppers said they're ass, said, you're lucky we're ass to Saquon Barkley. Couldn't say it better myself. We got to revisit Brandon Staley. We, we got to have a serious conversation about the job security there. I already feel like we know where this is going, but put a fork in the Chargers if they can't find a way to win this one. I'll take LA. Cardinals, Cardinals and Steelers. Steelers are a big favorite for the first time this season. Eight of their 11 games have been decided by seven or less. And 5.5 points, five and a half points is the biggest line they've been involved in all year. I'm curious to see how they handle being a real deal favorite now that their offense is going. Give me the Steelers. Dolphins at Commanders, sneaky contender for game of the day. This could be a lot of points. Commanders have allowed 29 or more in four of their last five. We know the Dolphins can score with everybody. Sam Howell has the potential for big plays as well as the potential for big mistakes. The over-under is 49 and a half. I'm taking the Dolphins, and I'm also taking that over. The Commanders have hit over that point total in three straight games. Let's lump Panthers at Bucks and Bengals and Jags into both of these. The Jags playing on Monday night. Got to get a win to keep pace in the AFC, and if the Bucks can't beat the Panthers at home, it's over for them as well. I'll take the Buccaneers and the Jags to get it done against two overmatched opponents. Pour one out for the Cincinnati Bengals playing with Joe Burrow, but, but those are just the breaks. The Buccaneers and the Jags, two teams that should be able to get two home wins, as usual. Like I said, I don't always come in under the buzzer, but that does it for the Week 13 preview. We will be back on Monday to break it all down. Niners-Eagles, what else needs to be said? Ralph Vacchiano will be here with us to look at what happened. We'll get into Lions-Saints. We'll get into Broncos-Texans. Some of it, we know what to expect. Of course, we're going to talk some Eagles-Niners, but plenty of it's going to come out of left field as well. We'll be here to walk you through the whole thing starting Monday. Until then, please go find us on Spotify. Please go find us on Apple Podcasts. We have a YouTube channel if you want to subscribe to that. That would be wonderful. We will see you all Monday, week 13, on deck. I'll catch you all next time.